Welcome to episode 27 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. Uh, good to be back with my co-hosts, Brian, Owen, John. Uh, exciting second episode of 2024. Uh, and last episode, we covered our predictions for the year. Uh, are they starting to already come true? Today, we find out. Uh, John, let's jump into the news you were talking about earlier with the billion-dollar distrust fund. Yeah, you bet. This came out uh, two days ago, January 20th, in the Financial Times. Um I'll read you the headline. Big developer launches $1 billion fund to buy distressed New York offices. Uh, RxR and Aries Management are betting on a thaw in the commercial real estate markets. Uh, a few highlights. The partners are convinced. Oh, by the way, that, do you remember? I think I said it. That we've been talking about being in this pre-capitulation phase where like this train wreck is coming, but the markets haven't really recognized it yet. They're, Lenders are allowing owners to extend and buy some time. So I called it the pre-capitulation phase. Okay, so listen to this. The partners are convinced that a prolonged paralysis in an office market frozen by uncertainty about interest rates and the threat of remote working is now breaking with many players ready to accept losses to unload or restructure assets. Uh, quote, this is Scott Reckler, the CEO of RxR. Quote, we have clarity as to where rates are. We have clarity about the future of offices and which buildings are going to be competitive. And we have a capitulation. I think to a recognition that values aren't just bouncing back like they did in 08, said Reckler, there's a reset and that this is more permanent. Hey, there's that capitulation word. Do you think he watches the pod? I'd like to think so. Um, they are planning to target a sliver of office buildings around the city that they believe are still appealing, but then that may need fresh capital to remain competitive or a restructuring of their debts to reflect the new realities of higher interest rates and slower or non-existent rent growth. Um, the, the buildings rank below the newest and most modern towers, which are still fetching record rents, flight to quality, but above a growing list of older offices that are fast becoming obsolete. Okay, so fascinating. Also, by the way, a billion dollars sounds like a big bet, but uh, Aries Management has $49 billion in real estate assets, so a $1 billion sideline bet isn't as massive as it sounds on the surface, but it's indicative. And here he's talking about a capitulation. I, I would argue that we're still in the pre-capitulation phase. It's starting to happen. Um, but broad, we haven't seen it broadly, but super fascinating. Um, and I don't, I don't disagree with their strategy if they can pick up assets at 30 and 40 cents, maybe, maybe 50, 30 or 40 cents on the dollar. What do you think? Yeah, so I think something that's, that's worth clarifying, and probably many of our listeners know this, but Whenever you're investing in a special situations fund, whether it be in a, a like private equity type vehicle or it be in a real estate vehicle, um, it's it's not reasonable to expect that they're going to start deploying this billion dollars, you know, days after they raise it. Right? Everyone's going to make commitments saying, "Hey, when you call me and tell me you need us to wire in money for you know fifteen or twenty percent of our commitment to buy the first building, we'll be ready to do that." Uh, and then typically there's a, a multi-year period. I mean, it could be five to seven years, maybe in some cases even longer, where you're able to deploy the capital. So uh, if people are sitting there thinking, gosh, how are they going to find deals in the next you know, 90 days or six months to deploy a billion dollars into this little um, kind of like niche sliver of a niche you know, um, sub-market, you know, wherever they're selecting, it's, it's hard to do that. Um, and there are instances where people raise these distressed funds and they're not able to deploy capital uh, as closely aligned with the original thesis as they want because they just 
I mean, it sounds great. Like, hey, let's go buy a bunch of buildings at a 30, 40% discount to market. But even though the real estate market is not very efficient, especially on the leasing side, it is a little bit more efficient on the capital market side. And people are not going to be sitting there saying, hmm, okay, we can take a, a major loss and give all the upside to this distressed fund. Let's do it. Um, obviously, there's four sellers and that's who they're targeting. So will be interesting to see how it goes and whether they can buy the assets that they want at prices that make sense. We talked about it early in the pod. There were a couple of examples in San Francisco where, and the question I was asking, okay, who are these buyers? And the theme then, and I think the theme here, is local developers, builders, folks who are in the game um, for the long term have seen several cycles um, and know the local market. So they sort of know which assets are going to be winners in the long term. And they're getting them at 30 and 40 cents on the dollar. So double down. Yeah. Yeah, it is really interesting. Uh, be, before we talk about distressed in general, because the even though this this article is focused on this you know niche segment of office buildings that are not quite you know class A plus and you know but still represent being much nicer than the flight to quality, I'd love to talk about you know whether you all think we're going to see distressed funds emerge in any other product types, right? Industrial, hospitality, things like that. But before we go to that. Uh, Brian, Owen, did any of you have any thoughts on this this RxR strategy specifically? Yeah, it's uh, as I think about it, I mean, I look back to history as a predictor of the future, um, recognizing that this is a little bit of a unique time, uh, given that uh, history didn't ha- we didn't have work from home as we do today. But the question I have is like, okay, so we're going to see distress. There's no doubt about it. But um, if you look at how office markets across the country, for that matter, are faring, there's a distinct uh, difference between the premium product and everything else. And what I mean by that is the premium product is pretty well stabilized. Um, It doesn't mean they're soaring to record rents um, and it's similar to that of which it was maybe in 2019, but they're fairly stabilized and doing fairly well. So the distress comes from twofold. It could be number one, there's uh, loan maturity coming due and given landlord can't refinance and therefore there's some distress there. Um, but one might suggest that if it's a premium asset, it's probably pretty well stabilized and there's probably a way to refinance. And so then the question is, okay, what gets, what is distressed based on uh, loan maturity and do people want it? And then what's the future look like for that asset? The second kind of distress is just that there may not be any loan maturity coming due right now, but there's no va- there's no occupancy. The building is just reeling in vacancy. Um, maybe it's a commodity type office building built in the 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe early 2000s. Wrong location has deferred maintenance, um, no upgraded amenities, and just by and large, tenants don't want to go there. And so the question then I have is, okay, so you find a piece of dist- distressed real estate. Either there's a financing distress, or there's kind of functional obsolescence, and the building just doesn't kind of play anymore in terms of the, its competitive set in the market, um, what's, what is that discount and, and, and what's your future? So there are buildings that I could name here in Seattle, elsewhere around the country for that matter, given the work I do in other cities, that probably will sell at some point for a massive discount. But the question is that what discount does it actually make sense if you can't attract people to come to the building, um, given the, the fact that many cities across the country right now, Seattle included, have a third of its office supply available. I mean, think about that. A third of the office product is available. And so you have to have some sort of thesis to turn these things around, 
or attract you know uh, occupants because if other, otherwise, what's the point? I mean, there's there's buildings. I wouldn't go so far as say that there's no future for them, but there are some that, despite whatever you might buy it for and whatever amount of capital you invest into the asset to try and bring people back, there's just a host of reasons which I won't get into that. Just I don't think it's going to be on the radar of any tenant for that matter seeking space. So. Um, we saw this in 08. There was a lot of blend and extends with these um, with these bankers where they just had these trouble loans and they just kind of extended and pretended, which is what we're seeing right now. Um, what the future looks like in this case, I'm not exactly sure. But as Tucker mentioned, it's important to note that this is a long-term play. These aren't people trying to put capital work right now. And I think once you see some of these two-year extensions that these uh, lenders are placing on these assets... Uh, coming to maturity and two years down the road, they're like, okay, got to do something now. That might be the opportunity where something happens. Yeah, I think I think you're you're exactly right, Owen. I think it's important to understand a billion dollars in the ecosystem of New York City commercial office is is infinitesimally small. It's still a billion dollars, but we're talking about 500 million square feet or more just in Midtown of commercial office and something close to that in downtown and then you got Brooklyn and you got all the other space in in and around the city. So it's just a really, really small number. It makes headlines because we haven't seen, to Owen's point, there's been extensions on a lot of the debt. There's $2.2 trillion worth of debt expiring before 2027. And we've, you know, we've we've seen very little in terms of the overall scale of the uh, of the pool of assets expiring of default. So it makes headlines because they raise a billion dollars, but in the grand scheme of things, to me, it's a small amount of money. Um, you know, and it kind of aligns with if you have following um, Mayor Adams back in August came up with this accelerator program to try to streamline the office to residential conversion. He threw a number out saying it could produce somewhere around five hundred thousand units, and these numbers are uh, somewhat from top of my mind, uh, so they could be a little off, but. The number, I think it was 46 to be somewhere between 46 and 50 properties signed up for the program, totaling a potential of like 20,000 units. His pool thought it could get to 500,000 units, right? So there's just not a lot of owners willing to convert. There's not a lot of uh, uh, trouble in the system actually on the ground with owners. They haven't come to the realization yet. And we're seeing this when we're doing deals. Owners have not come to the realization yet that they have to, if if they don't have to, they have to realize that their building is worth 20, 30, 40, 50% less. And until we get to that point, you can raise all the money you want in the sidelines and there will be deals to deploy a billion dollars. They could probably deploy it in 30 days if they wanted to. But the probably the size of the distressed market could be 100, 1,000 times more than that within the next 24 to 36 months in my mind. And to the extent that you're talking about a building that is truly functionally obsolete and needs to be demolished and redeveloped, I mean, markets will recover, markets will recalibrate. Um, I would suggest that that building is, there's still land value. It's, it's worth land value minus demolition cost. Sorry to say. Yeah. In some cases in New York, that value may be a negative because if you think about it, you've got a, a turn of the century office building that's uh, mid-block on a small site that's a very expensive to take down, full of 
environmental issues. Then you've got all your site costs to try to build something there, all your permitting and redevelopment costs. Your land value could be a negative, uh, and it could be 10 years before you see any income, right? So who's going to play that bet? Which century? Turn of the 20th century? What did I say? You said turn of the century. I say which one? Yeah, 20th century for a lot of them, I bet, right? Yeah. Okay. Bottom line, buying distress sounds really good on paper, much harder uh, to execute on in practice. People only want to sell if they have to sell, and there's not that many forced sellers just yet. Uh, and we'll see what happens, right? We talk about a lot of these landlords being um, you know, in positions where their buildings are worth way less. And if interest rates move you know, rapidly this year, then their buildings will be worth more. And maybe they're above that threshold where they now can refinance and kick the can down the road. So uh, we'll be really interesting to see. But mo moving on from you know, this RXR, uh, Aries, uh, billion dollar fund, you know, the, the tiny, tiny fund in the context of, you know, New York real estate, as Brian said, but still a very big number overall. Um, do you, do you all think we're going to see distressed funds in say industrial product type and some of these other segments that, you know, have been performing quite a bit better than office, but still are, um, you know, if our predictions come true from, uh, you know, two weeks ago, and if interest rates don't move quickly, what, what's the exposure there? So great question, Tucker. My opinion is if, and this is, and I give this advice for free to our listeners, but if you have an opportunity to raise a distressed fund for life science buildings, do it now. Because <laughs> there's a massive amount of product coming to market that has no tenants and no tenants in sight. Um, the smart owners that are well capitalized have been quietly selling off non-core assets like ARE here in, in New England sold off a bunch of suburban stuff over the last maybe year or two. But there's a number of projects I know of some here. I know of some on the peninsula, kind of San Fran area. I'm sure there's some down in San Diego, John. But uh, there's a ton of product coming to market that was built at, you know, when vacancy rates were zero to one percent that has no tenants in sight, they're putting massive capital into the buildings. And I don't see a scenario where um, those buildings without the improvements in place, because there's just so much product on the market that has expensive improvements that have been put in by um, other tenants in other buildings that are ready to go today that are, will lease first, right? Unless you're, you know, unless you're big pharma or you're uh, a company that has a very specific need that is different than the product on the market, the existing product's going to lease first because who's going to go spend you know, $500 to $1,000 a foot on improvements when you can at least capture some of that value in an existing building that's second generation that's, that's still brand new product, could be just a couple of years old. Uh, and I just see a lot of that uh, distress coming it's a lot of it's still under construction, so there's still a runway to try to get at least. I just don't think it's going to be successful by, by and large across the country. And I would suggest I don't think the same uh, distress dynamic will play out in the industrial. And here's why. Uh, what I think we're seeing in industrial is a good old traditional uh, leveling off. Um, the office market was hit by the pandemic, by a change culturally in the way we work forced work from home and all of a sudden everyone realized some version of hybrid work works. There's a, there's a real societal change that's happened to the way we work and the way we use office buildings. 
that hasn't happened for industrial. We still need to move product. We still need to build things. We still have logistics and supply chain. So I think what we're seeing in the industrial market isn't a recipe for distress and collapse. I think it's just a good old-fashioned market correction uh, with a leveling off and maybe a slight decline in some some rents. But I don't see a, a catastrophe there. Yeah, I think, I think you'll see very um, <clears throat> smart investors finding opportunities, but not a wide-scale sell-off or distressed. There's going to be a number of products and or, uh, developments that come to market in the short term that don't have any pre-leasing. The, the, the buildings were built on construction loans. Kind of everybody became an industrial developer. The big ones are going to be fine. And maybe it won't even be distressed. They're just going to get bought. These projects will get bought by the big players. But there's a lot of mom and pop people playing in this game, local developers that are sitting on construction loans that, um, you know, that make it difficult to convert in a high interest rate environment without the building being fully leased. So I think there's going to be opportunity, uh, certainly for, for, you know, owner users that would come in and buy and save a landlord, get a, you know, get some value, but true distressed. I think there's just too much demand in that, in that industry right now to see it go that far. Um, Certainly, with uh, if you think about on a macro or or a global basis, if I was in the industry, I would be or in a a position running a company. I would be bringing more product to the U.S. when I can, given supply lines being disrupted, costs getting disrupted, right? So you want to bring inventory onto onshore. There's probably going to be an impact. Like so, it's just always going to be there. I don't see it getting distressed. That's a good segue, uh, Brian, to this article that was recently in the Wall Street Journal about how office landlords are using cash gifts and loans to inflate building values. Because after all, what is distressed? Um, and nobody wants values to drop, as some suggest could be as much as 40%, uh, as suggested in the 60 Minutes piece uh, last weekend. Uh, about the office markets around the country. If you haven't seen that piece, I would I would Google it. Um, but the article was talking about how this past June, SL Green Realty and SL Green, for those that don't know, is a is a publicly traded REIT, real estate investment trust on the Nasdaq. Um, they primarily invest in office buildings and retail, um, uh, you know, shopping centers and so forth in 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 Manhattan in New York City. They recently built one Vanderbilt, which is arguably the nicest office building in New York. Uh, sits atop Grand Central Station. Um, but anyway, they, they sold, the article talks about how they sold about 50%, 49.9 exactly, in this uh, uh, in an office tower to a Japanese investor called Mori Trust for approximately $2 billion. And if you look back at 2023, it was pretty much the best, most notable capital markets transaction for an office building and uh, turned some heads. But if you actually, you know, look, you know, deep into the transaction, what the article was talking about was that um, it also sold uh, about $500 million worth of the building's debt at a 6% discount. Now, that's not a detail that's disclosed in any earnings reports or a press release. Um, and, you know, it's while it's totally legal and, and nobody's suggesting otherwise, uh, the concern is that these, you know, um, publicly available figures for these comps, for, the, for sale comparables for these office buildings... Um, are somewhat inflated due to these undisclosed financial maneuvers these landlords are doing. Um, and it's starting to become a broader trend in the office market when, it, when these owners and sellers are trying to resort to financial modeling 
to you know achieve certain strategies um, to increase uh, valuation. Uh, again, I want to be I want to stress that none of this is, um, is is nefarious or illegal. It's just a it's just a way you know these smart people um, that own billions of dollars of real estate kind of uh, financially engineer transactions for the sake of building valuations. Um, but as building values fall, and as some have suggested, as much as thirty five to forty percent in the coming years. Um, what are we going to start to see? I and mean, what is distressed? I mean, if people are uh, looking at these kind of uh, off paper, off books sort of financial metrics to engineer a sales transaction to promote v- building valuations, um, it's going to be tricky to kind of understand what the true value is and what true distressed is because you're going to have to understand what's going on behind the scenes to have made that transaction be possible. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great for tenants in the sense that the same bucket of of capital that is being used to financially engineer these values um, is being provided to tenants in concessions, right? So landlords are playing this concession game, um, trying to put deals together, maintain face rents, but provide huge cash allowances and lots of free rent and allowing you to apply those into the deal as, uh, you know, for rent down the, down the road. The, the net effect of it is if you are a U.S. company or a, a on U.S. gap, I should say, um, you get to look at it straight-lined over the term, right? Because TI allowances reduce rent. They don't offset capital. You get to bring your P&L costs down uh, while being able to allow the landlord to do the deal, which is keeping likely keeping face rents at some level that makes sense for their value and their ability to deploy the capital into the deal. So it could be a win-win. If if you're analyzing it on um, your client's behalf, you could be seeing a reduction or a very strong economic proposal. And then on the landlord side, they meet the thresholds they need to be able to uh, perform from an asset perspective. So I see it as a win-win. And the landlords that are coming to the table with these creative structures that we're a lot that we can model for our clients and that work out. I think it's great. It's a way to to beat the market. It's a way to keep um, you know keep the P and L rent expenses either going down or or flatlined into the future. So I want to ask a question to the group. I didn't come prepared to talk about this, but I've been seeing anecdotally these examples of large distressed office loans being purchased at a steep discount. So where maybe we aren't seeing as many buildings trading at a steep discount, you see. Um, folks willing to go out and acquire that loan at a, as maybe as a means to own that building at a steep discount. But I, I quickly um, looked up some examples um, from BizNow, 240 million pound city office and 104 million dollar pound loan sold at steep discounts in London. Uh, here's an example of a investor buys distressed West Loop office landmark at steep discount. I wonder if, are you seeing that? Um, again, I didn't come prepared to talk about it, but I think that's happening. I've seen several articles about it. We haven't talked about it here, but people are going upstream and, and buying the loans at a discount. Yeah, you're seeing a number of funds formed to buy distressed debt. So Starwood uh, Capital, uh, Barry Sternlich raised one uh, off the top of my head. I think Blackstone has announced that they've raised a distressed debt fund. It is a way to gain control of an asset without having to go through the process of buying the asset, right? A, a very um, high-profile one was the sale of the John Hancock, which is 200 Clarendon Street, 
icon, the most iconic building in Boston, um, was owned by Heinz in 2006. And then a few um, during the downturn of 08, 09, uh, and these, da- these dates could be a little off, um, they were upside down on the asset. Um, Normandy Real Estate Partners came in and bought a sliver of the debt because this was a multiple, there was could have been 20 lenders in the debt stack. They kind of bought a sliver of debt somewhere, you know, in the middle of the stack, was able to use that acquisition to acquire the building at a valuation of maybe six six fifty um six hundred and fifty million dollars. A few years later they sell the building for just under a billion dollars to Boston properties. Right. So there's massive amounts of opportunity to buy the debt, gain control of the asset, or just flip the debt later for 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 a profit too. But it's a way to get control of assets that many smart investors are using and will continue to use, I think, more and more. Can I pivot this conversation now to uh, what I wanted to talk about? So I've got a client, and this is this is where I think it gets really fun for us and our clients. Is what's there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. There's a lot of um, um, debt expiring in the marketplace. There's a lot of landlords that own assets that are levered through the roof and they don't know what to do with them. Well, uh, in this particular example is I've got a client that's in a roughly 100,000 square foot suburban office building. They've got eight years of lease term remaining. Um, they, they have the need to put in significant amount of capital into the building, say 100, between 60 and $100 a square foot for improvements, but also um, infrastructure to bring some uh, critical processes to a lab in the building. So looking at it, they said, was this the right thing to do with eight years of lease term? We've got options. We've got control. And we started thinking about it differently and said, why don't we go to the owner who owns a number number of other buildings that are are not performing, that have you know a lot of vacancy? Why don't we go to them and try to buy the building? And and if we can get the building for say two hundred dollars a foot, um, which to me is is a reasonable um, value for the building, it sold for just under that uh, a couple of years ago. We could. You know, we could then look at it from our P&L of an owned asset that we could uh, depreciate over, say, the useful life of 20 years versus rent expense that we would be uh, paying over the next eight years and then options. And then you layer in the capital so that, say, $100 a foot depreciated over, you know, the eight-year lease term or um, – a much longer term for some of that. You have to break it up into the useful life of the improvement. So internal staircase is a lab that has uh, real critical infrastructure. You could maybe get to 10 or 15 or 20 years even. Um, some of it's much shorter. But the, you start to look at it on their P&L. You could take their cost today on a lease basis and reduce it by around 60% uh, if they bought the building. Now, many companies have a lot of cash on the sidelines. They're they have the opportunity to deploy them into their business probably first. But secondly, if they don't have an opportunity to deploy the cash into the business, why not turn around and buy the real estate? And then you could own it. If the market re- returns or you decide you don't want to own it, you could always do a sale lease back later. But given the distress level in, in, the, in the risk in the marketplace for these owners, there's a lot of landlords that will step up. In this, in this environment and sell you a building at a very steep discount, allow you to control it, put the improvements in it you need, depreciate it over a much longer period of time, 
yes, there's not as much flexibility, but I think this market at some point will normalize. And if you invested in the building and you want to flip out of it and do a sale lease back in five years or something, you'll be able to get your money back out of the building either more or at least at par from what you paid for it. So it's kind of a win-win and no-brainer for this particular example. I wanted your um, your guys' thoughts on it. Yeah, it's such a great opportunity, particularly if you're a higher multiple type of company, like you traded a higher you know uh, multiple on earnings. Um, you know, you you think about a company that trades at twenty times earnings or something like that, being able to deploy capital. Uh, and when you own a building, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, of how it relates to gap, right? Your only expenses for owning a building as far as gap are concerned is depreciation and then any interest that you have via your mortgage. So if you bought something all cash, you're just dealing with depreciation on the asset uh, and that's it. And oftentimes when you compare the, you know, that depreciation number compared to, you know, a market rent, if you're in, you know, Boston or LA or something like that, obviously this is a, a pretty crude example because we aren't comparing like a known sales price to a known market rent. But there can be instances where you're able to reduce your P&L expense by, you know, 60-70%. And then you think about what's that savings uh, translate to. Um, and there are instances where we've analyzed this for clients where every dollar that they're investing uh, in, you know, in the building is the equivalent to $3 or $4 in terms of actual uh, like market cap increase, assuming their earnings multiple stays the same. So I, I think there there is a big opportunity. Obviously, for companies that have higher multiples, uh, generally they have higher multiples because the incremental capital that they can invest uh, is expected to be higher yielding than you know like a newspaper company or something like that. That you know generally is, have as a deteriorating business or you know return on incrementally invested capital is going to be low, but. But yeah, I mean, Brian, I think in the in the case of your client, you obviously know this because you're you know deep in the exploration and advising. But I agree. I th I think that it makes a lot of sense assuming that there's excess capital, there's not a higher yielding vehicle to put it in. And when I say higher yielding, I don't just mean hey, we're buying it at a you know seven or eight cap. We expect that it can appreciate one percent annually or something, or we'll be able to create a little bit of value by financial engineering the sale lease back. But really what I mean is the whole picture, right? How does this relate to the value of the company and the and the overall market cap? Uh, and, that, and that's much more important than just looking at, you know, hey, we're buying an asset for, you know, X dollars that's only appreciating 1% per year. It's no, no, no. It's it's about what does the change in P&L expense do to your uh, market value as an entire business? Yeah, you know, I've said it before on this pod. Um, I feel after 37 years in this business, never has the role of the tenant side broker been more important than it is in this market cycle. So credit to you, Brian, for, for thinking this way. Right here, you got a client that needs to spend money on a building. They've got eight years to go on a lease. Uh, what do you do with that? Eight years is a long time. Um, but the truth is, you you can maybe you can get that landlord to the table. Maybe it's not the lease expiration date that's going to drive them to the table. Maybe they have a loan maturity date next year that's going to be a problem. So um, thinking creatively about bringing the landlord to the table uh, like you're doing um, is genius. It's not always just about the lease expiration date. And look at the uh, clever math on on uh, gap accounting for owning a building. Um, brilliant. Something that I, I found kind of humorous that I'm running into right now on a sublease transaction 
and and Brian, I, you and I have talked about this a little bit. So I I have a client that uh, obviously cares about Gap, but n- not to the extent that uh, and and in this scenario, our client is the proposed subtenant. Um, so the sub landlord on the other side is a a very large publicly traded company, and um, we're we're in this scenario where the market rent that they can charge for the sublease is such that they're going to realize a, a pretty serious loss on the sublease. And that uh, loss is not yet reflected in their financial statements. So they're, they haven't impaired the space. They haven't written it down. And they're sitting there going, gosh, we really don't want to report this big write down um, on our next you know quarterly financial statements. So we've proposed this lease structure or the sublease structure rather that is totally ridiculous that um, I don't want to go into too much uh, details just because it's you know ongoing confidential transaction. But imagine you structure a sublease where you have like a five-year deal and four of the years are just completely free. And then you pay all of the remaining rent in the final fifth year. And the idea is that our client cares much more about the time value of money. And they're sitting there saying, okay, what's the net present value of the deal if I have four years of free rent and then the fifth year is paid and the, and the rent in the fifth year is huge, right? Because it's basically accounting for the entire lease. So the sub-landlord uh, is sitting there saying, okay, great. Uh, the total you know, straight line rent is what we need. And our client's sitting there going, whoa, this is a way better deal than uh, you know, what we probably would have been able to get otherwise. It's, it's significantly worse on a gap basis, but overall it makes sense because of, you know, if you assume that you know, an 8% discount factor or 10% discount factor or something like that, uh, it becomes it becomes really interesting. So there's a lot of financial engineering going on on, you know, these types of transactions, whether it be buy-sell transactions, subleases, uh, you know, direct leases with landlords. And I just, I found it humorous. We'll, uh, you know, still, still trying to get the sub-landlords auditors to approve that this is okay. Uh, but from our client's perspective, they uh, don't really care because they're not focused on uh, on Gap, you know, because they're not a publicly traded company and don't report to shareholders in the same way. I love the ingenuity. I would say that I would be shocked, not shocked, but I'd be surprised if um, the answer from the auditors doesn't come back to we were able to look through the transaction and understand the intent. And the intent is what you're trying to um, effectively change the reporting on the deal. So we're still going to report it the old way, right? Because that's, unfortunately, that's, that's their job is to kind of look at the intent and figure out what you're trying to structure. And in that process, likely unwind, um, could unwind the, the benefits for them with, um, you know, with how they look at it. I, I, I wonder, did you, did you analyze assigning the lease? Because, I found that it's for to similar objectives for my clients that are the ones who are looking to, um, you know, reduce the impact. Assigning the lease and then writing a check on the on a buyout has been a way to um, help them mitigate that shock on their financials because you're assigning effectively the entire value of the lease, and then there's a payment, um, you know, that makes up the difference. So it's been uh, with with our technical accounting people at a particular client. That's been the, the the preferred method of doing it. Yeah, in in this scenario, the sub landlord has really unfavorable 
uh, sublease assignment language that makes these one-time payments very difficult and subject to participation from the landlord, which uh, basically makes it untenable financially for for either party. So we'll we'll see what ends up happening. It is very interesting. Uh, I've asked uh, a like publicly traded uh, or like a, a public auditor uh, at a at a you know big accounting firm for their thoughts on how this is going to go. Uh, and they were relatively positive of, I actually think that it will work. Here's why. Um, we'll have to do a follow-up update. I've, you know, these deals can fall apart for reasons unrelated to the gap, you know, structure of the deal. So if this, if this deal ends up happening, I will provide an update. Uh, and then pretty soon the, the preferred sublease structure for publicly traded sub landlords may just be like a hundred months free. And then the hundred first month is this lump sum payment. Uh, it'd be pretty hilarious if that's where the market went. Of course, if you're the sub landlord, you're incurring enormous amounts of uh, default risk at that point. You know, just giving somebody like years and years of free rent and expecting to be paid, made whole, you know, five years from now. So anyways, it, it is interesting. But circling back on, on what you were talking about earlier, Brian, with the building purchase, uh, I think when you can buy these buildings at the right price, uh, and you have the right earnings multiple, and you have a large cash position, a lot of times it's really a no-brainer. And then it's just a matter of uh, getting companies' attention to say, hey, this is actually a really good use of your time. This is very strategic, and it can have an enormous impact on uh, overall valuation of the business. So let's let's look at it, let's analyze it, let's be really thoughtful about it, and you know, find opportunities that may work. And that, and that can be buying out of an existing lease, uh, and effectively owning your real estate and terminating your lease because the you know landlord and tenant are the same people, uh, and it also could mean buying a building when you're approaching lease expiration. So all of these are scenarios that companies, uh, particularly with larger footprints uh, that are well capitalized, should be looking at as you know as part of their real estate process. And one last recommendation there is I would highly recommend that before you look at any specific buildings you get consensus around, is it a good idea at all, right? If, if you can go out and say, at you know this price range, this is the impact to us, then you can start applying those standards to whatever is available in the market. Uh, the alternative of, hey, let's go look for buildings, see what's available, you know, maybe we find something, maybe we don't, um, I, think, I think is a little bit flawed. And then it's a much better to get alignment on, is this the right strategy? And then once you have alignment on that, I think the, the phase two is, is this a strategy we can ex actually execute on in today's market based on availability and buildings being suitable for us that you know we can realistically access as, as a buyer? Yeah, agree. I think to add to that, if you make the decision that it's a strategy that you want to explore, making sure you've, you build a team that that understands that you're going to be taking on a lot of the risk that the landlord currently has. So um, it's one thing if you're already operating in the building, you know the building inside and out, you know, uh, you know where all the bodies are buried. If you go to market as a tenant to lease space, there's uh, a significant amount of risk that stays with the landlord for that building and their requirements to maintain it and update it and report on it around just whatever regulation there is. Owning a building especially one that you don't ha know very well. Uh, it just takes a higher level of understanding and due diligence up front uh, in the process. And I guess that's why it's pretty important, Tucker, to your point, is to make that decision up front because 
you're forming a very different team or a more um, uh, robust team to be able to really underwrite these assets, especially in a market where landlords are going to be deferring capital left and right because they don't have the funds or they're, you know, they're concerned about their ability to maintain an asset or maintain ownership of the asset with some sort of a, um, a you know, a, an event coming, lease roll or uh, a recapitalization. Yeah, I just think that for the listeners, just to kind of recap that, that was a fantastic discussion, guys. Um, but the decision to own or lease should really kind of, a business should really look at um, the pros and cons of each. And that's something a good representative can walk you through. I mean, there's flexibility, there's preserving working capital, um, there's risk mitigation with property risks. Um, and sometimes people just want to focus on their core business and don't want to own real estate. But there are plenty of circumstances where it could provide you know, significant cost savings one way or another. Uh, and there are some tax benefits. So again, fantastic. You know, I thought that was a great discussion. Um, just you know, find someone that can you know, appropriately and diligently kind of guide you through the process of evaluating each option, which Brian, it sounds like you're doing a great job for your client. WeWork sent out uh, notice to a number of buildings here in Boston uh, last week, um, maybe even the week before, uh, notifying them that as of February 1st, they have no access to the space and they're canceling their license agreement. So these were buildings that were not uh, on the list to be um, to be terminated as part of the bankruptcy. This is a another list that WeWork um, uh, is just sending out notices. So one particular landlord here in, in Boston, which is I think is great, um, they're they're quickly using their resources to sign licensing agreements with the tenants in their building, uh, short term, you know, three to four months, two to four months, and allow them to stay in their WeWork space. And they've even said, we don't know how we're going to figure out access, we don't know how we're going to figure out server, but we're going to help you, right? And that's uh, I think that landlord's it's pretty impressive that they're stepping up. Uh, in doing that, but uh, many tenants here in, in Boston are scrambling because they're, you know, they're uh, everything's getting shut off in in a week. Brian, are you going to do a little shout out for for your landlord uh, that you're referencing that's uh, that's helping everyone, or no no free shout outs, no free plugs on the pod? Honestly, I it's one of two, and I'm not sure which one is doing it um, because there's two buildings that are happening at, and it's one or the other, and I'm not. And clear in my head which one uh, I talked to the broker and I forget what building he represents. Uh, so I don't. I would have said it. Okay. I'll bring it up again next next pod. How about that? <laughs> okay. Okay. Sounds good. No free shout outs. Make sure you're getting a, like a t-shirt or something out of you know giving them some praise on the pod. Uh, no joking aside. No sponsors. We can't be bought. We tell it like it is. No landlords are in our pockets. Uh, okay. Thank you all for listening. Let's wrap up episode 27 there. Great episode. Uh, We'll be back in a few weeks with the next one. Thanks, everyone.